in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're going to start off with a little listener mail. But on this case, uh, we're actually talking about listener mail that was sent to us via Facebook. So listener Facebook. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, listener Andrew wrote to us and said, inspired by your recent drone episode, I'd love to hear an episode on the Google Wi-Fi balloon project uh, and provided us with a link and then said, thanks for keeping my daily commute less boring. Cheers. And cheers to you, sir. Yes, we will. Uh, we will endeavor not to bore you further. We will continue our exciting delivery. The Google balloon Wi-Fi project. Let's begin. Actually, that's 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 way too low key. I'm sorry, guys. I I've had a long day. So, what is this? What is this idea? Balloons, Wi-Fi, Google. These are just words, Lauren. <laughs> he's he's talking about Google Loon. Um, and this entire project got started off because, according to Google, who would probably know, about two thirds of the world's population, some five to six billion people, don't have internet access. Yeah. And, and I mean, they're not talking like their Wi-Fi is down today. No, like, no. They have no internet access. Zero at all. way to get to the internet. Um, and so, so Google, this, this team at Google, which we will talk about later, came up with this concept that they could have a network of balloons providing Wi-Fi access. Yeah, so you're essentially you're creating this radio wave network and the instead of building towers like you would with a 3G uh, or 4G type right. thing. Uh so so you know that way we would normally build a tower, right? In the middle of nowhere and then have a network of towers and that would be your cellular network or it'd be your 4G network or whatever and that's how you would get access to the internet. But this is a but that's more expensive and that's infrastructure. And, and yeah, and you have to you have to figure out where to build things. You've got to get the permission to build where you want to build. Some of these places might be really remote and it might be difficult to build out that far. Uh, the use of some of the radio signals can get tricky sometimes. So what if you were instead to have everything that would be mounted on a tower and held by a balloon, a giant balloon that could fly at incredible altitudes and provide Internet and service? And bounce Internet signals uh, around, you know, to the balloons and then to to receivers on the ground, antenna that are privately owned. Yeah, so this is all part of a division within Google called Google X. Right. And Google X is kind of the super secret uh, uh, division of Google. Works of yeah, Google. Skunk Works. Yeah, Skunk Works. Hey, you know, that's a preview for an upcoming episode. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it's what would be used as a, a way of doing rapid research and development on Projects, and in fact, the guy who is essentially uh, Sergey Brin is a, is really a, a, in charge of Google X, but there are other people who oversee these projects. Uh, their role, supposedly, is that they look at projects and look for reasons to kill them, and says that you know we kill projects really quickly, and you have to be able to justify your projects. Worth, worthfulness, exactly. Worth, worthfulness. That's a great word. Yeah, full of worth is what we're looking <laughs> for, and if it is not, then we will get rid of it. So. So hypothetically, each of these balloons will, will serve a ground area some 40 kilometers or 25 miles in diameter at 3G-ish speeds. Which is not bad, especially when you're thinking about a place that has never had internet before. Like, you know, for anyone who's used to really fast internet, 3G sounds like a major step down. For me, it sounds incredible because I remember back when I had a dial-up 1200 baud modem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 3G speeds is is pretty fast to go from nothing to 3G is is uh, that's a that's huge, right? And uh, and and you know we were talking about ta- talking earlier about that cellular tower network yeah. kind of concept, and and this is like it's it's not really like a satellite system as much as like a like a 
cellular tower network wherein the towers are moving instead of the users. Right. So the towers themselves will float and uh, they'll all float on. OK. Uh, and they will uh, essentially change. Better, better than location. we all float down here. Yes, overall is a reference. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. There's a that's now I've got. <laughs> Nothing but Tim Curry going through my head at this point. Thanks so much for that vision. No problem. So these loon balloons, um, they they're they're set to float in the stratosphere. Oh, now I need some details here, Lauren. What is the stratosphere? I mean, I hear it like think this is going to the stratosphere, so I assume it's high up or it's something. It's pretty high. All right, it is the second layer of the Earth's atmosphere, uh, which is about 10 to 50 kilometers, a.k.a. 30,000 to 197,000 feet, a.k.a. 6 to 37 miles above the surface. That's all, incredible. All of this is, is pretty approximate and rough because, uh, you know, the, the, it changes as the altitude is the altitude of the ground level changes. Right. So like in mountainous areas, it's different than if you're at the Dead Sea or something, right? So Right. Uh, um, or, or Death Valley is really what I was thinking of. But anyway, so... <laughs> I'm sure the Dead Sea is relatively low, too. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's not high up on my list. At any rate, it's a, a good spot to locate this, right? Because at that level, you're really floating above weather patterns. Right. right. Most of the clouds and, and, and everything, all the storms and stuff are going to happen in the troposphere, which is, you know, where we are. Yep. So that's the stuff that's all around us. And, uh, above the stratosphere is the mesosphere. Right. And so we've got this, this region where if the balloons are traveling through this, they're going to avoid all those storms. It's also important because as I understand it, when we get to it, their power source is going to be heavily depend upon not having clouds in the way. Absolutely. Um, it's also above most birds and jet planes. So you're going to avoid interference with that stuff. Right. Yeah. Because most, uh, commercial jets travel at around 35,000 feet or so. So if it's in the stratosphere at, you know, a hundred thousand feet, it's well over what most commercial jets are traveling at. Even at a hundred thousand, you're even talking about higher than most, uh, surveillance vehicles, um, unless there's uh, some secret ones out there that we don't know about, which yeah. is totally possible. Entirely possible. I've never uh, been to telescope that way myself, so it's hard for me to say. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're supposed to be around, right around 20 kilometers or 66,000 feet or 12 miles above the surface. So not, not quite at that 100,000 mile mark, but pretty high up. Yeah, really high up. So... Now, it is called the stratosphere, and this is important. It's not just useless weather-related information because uh, because it's stratified or layered in temperature, getting warmer as it goes higher. Now, the 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 troposphere where we are gets colder as it goes higher. Mm-hmm. So this is this is a little bit of a of a difference. And um, thanks to that temper temperature differentiation, the layers are going to contain different currents of relatively slow winds um, right. that are going in different directions. So in other words, if you are able to control the altitude of a balloon, you would be able to change direction. Uh, right. To, to get it into those different airstreams and move it around pretty much as you please. That will also come into play in a little bit. That was just a little teaser. Uh, you know, it's um, it's also where the ozone layer is, right? That is correct. So this is uh, obviously if for those of you who were around in the 80s and you remember hearing about the ozone layer. Uh, a being, lot. Yeah. Every day. Getting destroyed by all of our hairspray. Uh, this is the layer of the atmosphere where you would find the ozone layer. By the way, that also is why 
you know, you, you hear about stuff that produces ozone and people talk about how that's bad and you might get a mixed reaction there. You're thinking, wait, I, I remember the ozone layer was going away and that was bad, but now there's these other things that make ozone and that's bad. And it's because of the location of the ozone layers, the stratosphere. That's where it's useful for us. But ozone down here in the troposphere is bad news and not useful for us. So that's why it gets a little confusing. So, yeah, so, so it's a pretty elegant system. It, I mean, the, the basic concept is, is is if you launch these balloons, mm-hmm. then uh, and we will get into the construction of those in just a moment, then you can you can use these air currents to let them travel basically as they will, but in a relatively controlled manner. Right. So if it starts going too far off, you can change the altitude of the balloon using whatever control mechanism you've set up. Mm-hmm. And then that way it will drift in a different direction, hopefully back toward where you want it to go. But if you were able to make a large enough network of these, then presumably you could just allow them to drift across the countryside because another one would pick up the slack right, right. from where the first one yeah, left creating off. creating a more or less continuous ring of, of connectivity. That is also pretty amazing, just imagining this ring of balloons circling the globe and slowly providing uh, Wi-Fi to everybody. So uh, let's talk about what these things are actually made out of. So it, it's not like a balloon that you would find at a kid's birthday party. Not exactly, no. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so it's going to consist of, of uh, the balloon itself is called the envelope, mm-hmm. and that's made of sheets of um, polythylene plastic, which is a really large family of plastics with a whole range of, of flexibilities and other properties. It's used for everything from like film to juice bottles, uh, cable jacketing, car bumpers, and plastic shopping bags, which the team says the balloons are really similar to, if some three times thicker. Yeah, the, the bags are three times thicker, I should say, because the balloon is three mil thick. Now, mil is actually a, a measurement here. We're talking about 0.076 millimeters. That's how thin this envelope is. 0.076 millimeters. Now, that is incredibly thin. This polyethylene uh, sheet is is very, very um, vulnerable. So you have to be very careful when you unfold it before you inflate it, obviously, because otherwise just the tiniest uh, problem. Would, yeah, you, right. yeah, you end up with a big ri- uh, ri- rip in it. Um, this, by the way, is very similar to the balloon that was used by Felix Baumgartner, who oh, okay. did his uh, space mm-hmm. jump where he he flew as high up as anyone had ever done in a balloon and higher, in fact, and set a world record and then jumped out of the, the balloon to plummet to the earth because that's what sane people do. <laughs> no, it's actually it was, it it was a really good TV. It was a phenomenal. I mean, I watched it. I watched it from I missed the very beginning because I was I remember I was out at the time, but I got home turned it on, and it was still during the earliest part of the ascent. So he he was maybe, I don't know, 10,000 feet up. Yeah, I was glued to that thing. It was incredible. So anyway, the balloons that they're using or that they will use for this, uh, they've got a pilot program we'll talk about in a bit, but uh, for the full rollout, it's very similar to the balloon that Felix Baumgartner used. And in fact, it's it's provided by the same company. It's Raven Aerostar is the name of the company. And... uh, so these incredibly thin balloons get pretty big, as I recall. Uh, yeah, about 15 meters wide by 12 meters tall, which is about 50 by 40 feet when inflated. Yeah, and they don't get fully inflated until they've reached a certain altitude. And it's another one of those things, like if you watched the Felix Baumgartner uh, ascent, you would saw that the, the, the shape of the balloon actually changed quite a bit as it went up. You know, it went from kind of this 
bulbous balloon to an elongated teardrop kind of shape. And that's more or less what these would look like once they reach the right altitude. Mm-hmm. So what is giving them the lift? That would be helium gas. Good old helium. Yes, that's not a bad choice. I mean, it's, you know, it's hard to get a hold of, comparatively speaking, in the sense that we talk about how helium is one of those resources that's increasingly difficult for us to get, and we need it for lots of different stuff, including things like cooling down super colliders so that we can do, you know, universe-level science. But uh, it's still, uh, I would say, preferable to something like hydrogen, which can go boom. Right, absolutely. Helium um, doesn't go boom. Helium will make you talk funny if you breathe it, but other it won't make you go boom. I, hypothetically not, unless something else is very, very wrong, Yeah, I would say. And maybe if physics have somehow changed in your local area, then I suggest you find shelter. But so these these balloons are, these balloons are filled with helium gas, and um, they contain a, a a pump to control the fill of the balloon. Um, that right. would allow you to to make a descent if you needed to, or a further ascent. Right. So this, that's how they can control where the balloon is going by using this pump to either vent out or put in more helium. Mm-hmm. Um, it also includes a parachute in case of some kind of. Uh, popping related emergency yeah, like, wherein you need to get the equipment back to the ground without smooshing it. Yeah, or possibly smooshing someone underneath it if it's in a populated area. So that makes sense. And then uh what I love about this is that how do you how do you power the electronics? I mean obviously you've got some sort of transmitter and a receiver up there. You would have to, right? So the receiver is going to take the uh the information that's been essentially uh broadcast out from the user and then transmit the new information down to the user, and that's how you get your Internet access. But that means that you have to get electricity somewhere because these things just don't run on helium. And the pump doesn't run on helium itself. That's a so, good point. Right. So, uh, And that would be, I mean, you know, if you were doing this in Victorian times, you would have a really fancy steam engine, I'm right. sure. That would be, need an enormous balloon. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, uh, but in this case, we're powering it with solar panels. Um, just, just a really thin layer, um, uh, kind of hanging in between the envelope of the balloon and, and the hardware that's going to hang out below. Mm-hmm. And, um, in full sun, it's supposed to produce about 100 watts. And so you've also got on there some batteries, which makes sense because even when it's floating above the, the cloud line so that you're still going to get as much sun as possible, there's this thing called nighttime. Right, right. So, so the, uh, the, um, the, the boxo hardware that floats or doesn't float, it's attached below the solar panels is going to contain some rechargeable batteries for that whole wacky nighttime thing. All right. And what does, uh, what, what, what kind of software are we talking about? What's the operating system? It's Linux based. Uh, Linux based. Well, that makes sense. I mean, so is Android, really. Android is a, a variation of Linux. So that makes sense to me. And it's got, uh, GPS on it. So it knows where it is, which is important because obviously you're going to have ground teams monitoring these balloons to make sure that they're operational and that they are where they're supposed to be. And they can also send some commands to the balloons if they, if needed. Yep. Which again could be important if you need to change the altitude. Um, and so they also have some sensors aboard, right? Uh, right, including um, uh, air temperature monitoring and uh, also for altitude and speed Very so important. that they can tell those operators what, what's going on. And temperature is a, a big deal because that's one of those uh, things in the stratosphere that you have to deal with. There, it gets pretty chilly up there. So Yeah, um, like, like negative 50 degrees Celsius, which in some I don't understand how temperature works at those ranges, but it's only 
negative 58 degrees Fahrenheit, which <laughs> seems incorrect. But no, no, no. It's it's when you get down to those low temperatures, they they kind of uh, they converge at one point and then they start to go apart again. I, I think um, I think what that means is technically just really bloody cold. Yeah, it's um, really really cold. And but here's the nice thing: electronics work better when they're cold. So yes, there's that. Um, but but also important for that air temperature is to figure out what uh you know you know if if you are for some reason not picking up what speed you're going or what direction you're going correctly, you can use that air temperature to help guide the balloon into the correct airstream. Gotcha. All right, and then you have the radio antennas themselves, the actual antennas that end up uh, receiving and tr- and transmitting the information to the users on the ground. Um. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I, I, I saw a picture of, of the ones that were on the, uh, the ground that they look a little weird. Yeah, they're, they're kind of basketball shaped. And yeah. this is, this is really, this is a specific design point that they, that they created because when you, when you've got this bulbous antenna, it should hypothetically help send and capture signals between the balloons, even when the angles are very awkward. Right. So you don't have to have it as directional as you right. would with a regular antenna. Mm-hmm. So uh, in order to launch one of these balloons, you have to have a team of at least six people. So that includes a launch commander and a coordination team at Mission Control. I love that they have a Mission Control. But, yeah, it takes six people to to launch one of these. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's not something that you can fully automate. Like I said, just the fact that the balloon itself is so delicate means that you have to take great care. Uh, I remember that watching that video of of the team for Felix Baumgartner's uh, ascent where they were very carefully unrolling the balloon and everyone was being extra sensitive about it because even the smallest tear could mean disaster. Same sort of thing for these balloons. Uh, there's a lot more we have to talk about with these and, and you know, the, the things that Google's going to have to look out for. And also, I've got a fun little story about what it was like to be approached by Google to be in the initial alpha test of this technology. But before we do that, let's take a quick break and thank our sponsor. All right, so we're back. Let's talk about some of the challenges Google faces with this program. Right. Um, so so the stratosphere is not really the most friendly environment to work in necessarily. Um, the air pressure is about 1% that of sea level. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about the temperature. We talked about the temperature. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's a little bit chilly up there. And um, also the, the the part of the stratosphere that the balloons are working in is near the upper end of the ozone layer, um, which means that the balloons are going to be subject to more radiation and temperature swings from the sun. Right. So that means uh, more ultraviolet radiation. There's some other issues that they could potentially run into that, you know, the atmosphere protects us from a lot of that stuff. But these balloons would be much more vulnerable to it. Now, it doesn't mean that the likelihood of them failing is super high. In some cases, we're talking about events that we just can't plan for because we don't understand enough to be able to predict what would happen. But it does mean it's something that could potentially impact the project. Uh, right. It, it basically just means that they need to think about how to make the equipment a little bit sturdier than they owe, than they normally would for something ground-based, right. and which will impact the cost. And Google, of course, is really interested in making these as cheap as possible to be able to provide the service, the service to as many people as possible. Right. So keeping it cheap and durable, those are that's a huge challenge, right? Because those two things don't normally go hand in hand. No. Cheap and uh, it'll last forever. Not something we see very frequently. However, to offset some of those costs, they are collaborating with NOAA. Uh, it's the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. 
Thank you. Yes. Um, uh, they're in, in return for giving Noah some data about the wind patterns that they're, that they're picking up from all mm. of these balloons being up there. Uh, Noah is helping them out a little bit with funding and, uh, and. Oh, interesting. So it's, so research. it really is a, a great collaborative. Uh, uh, project. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're also getting a little bit of information about them because, of course, Noah has a whole lot of weather balloons, and so they're they're getting some good info about how to construct these things. Now, I have got I've got another question for you, Lauren. So, if I'm understanding this correctly, we've got these balloons floating around the stratosphere. They they are obviously mobile, uh, so the stratosphere will be pushing them around. The winds, even though they're moving slowly, will still push these balloons around. Wouldn't that mean that there'd be the possibility occasionally that I might not have a balloon that's in range of me? Absolutely. And part of that is going to be covered by that by that bulbous antenna design. But they're also collaborating with a bunch of ground based uh, Internet service providers in mm. order to help uh, fill in the coverage and and create a more continuous network. Also, they're looking to get like four to five hundred balloons for a single latitude. So hopefully they would be able to to provide a pretty good coverage there. OK, um, but uh, there's also some international laws to worry about. In, in these are modern times, I can imagine that some countries might not be excited about internet based things flying through their airspace. Yeah, I think anytime you are flying something over another sovereign nation's airspace and you are not part of that sovereign nation, there's already uh, a level of trust that you are asking for that, that that's a big, that's a big request. And then on top of it, we're talking about a communication system. That's right. really what the Internet is. And and something run by Google, which may or may not share information with the uh, NSA. And may or may not knowingly share information with the NSA, because there's a lot of uh, information. Ever since we did our NSA uh, episode, we've had people say, you need to update that because all this other information that's come out. That's a story that's just continuing to break. And it does also, look like... Also, it's really sad, and I don't yeah. want to go there. Right, again. yeah. There's Plus... There, there's this weird car. I don't know if I told you about this, Lauren, but there's this weird car on the corner and it's been there for like ever. I'm sure it's nothing. Anyway, um, there's just things that we think about. At any rate, yeah, I would see that that would be a barrier possibly is that making sure that all the countries you want to, uh, to, to fly s- this stuff over. And, and, you know, some of them, it may be that they don't want it, but, but they don't need the service. But, but if, in order to get to the countries that do need the service. Yeah, you got to fly through the stratosphere. It's not like you have complete control over these balloons. You can make them go generally where you want mm-hmm. them to go. But there's going to be some, you know, some floating there. So and, and that level of the stratosphere is, by the way, still part of any given sovereign nation's territory. It's not it's high not, up enough that yeah. it would be in um, in space where you uh, where it's no it doesn't belong to anybody where no one can yeah. hear you make a lawsuit. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, uh, oh, tort reform doesn't exist in space. <laughs> Uh, there, there are a few naysayers. Uh, Bill, Bill Gates made a really <sighs> awesomely scathing comment. I'm, this is, this is kind of terrible, but I love it. Uh, all right. So he, he was basically saying that there are really bigger problems to worry about in third world countries other than internet service. Um, according to Tech Radar, he said, yeah, when you're dying of malaria, I suppose you'll look up and see that balloon, and I'm not sure how it'll help you. When a kid gets diarrhea, no, there's no website to fix that. So, uh, I have I have this gentle message for for Mr. Bill Gates. Mr. Bill Gates, I would go so far as to suggest that solving the world's problems is not a zero sum game. And therefore, concentrating on one problem does not necessarily mean you cannot also contribute effort towards solving another problem. And that we do not live in a world where we have to pick and choose which problems we solve. We, in fact, live in a world 
where we have the capability of addressing many problems simultaneously. So I think it's okay for Google to address the access to Internet problem, and it doesn't suggest that Google does not care about these other issues. Rather, it says we can do all of this if we put our minds to it. That's all I have to say about that. Uh, although I will point out that Google has also said that by 2016, they expect the Internet to generate $4.2 trillion in value, doubling what it was in 2012. Oh, my goodness. Meaning that if you are not part of the Internet, then you're kind of not making the money that you would need to address some of these problems. So perhaps oh, sure. by getting this access, countries that are experiencing really serious issues well beyond Internet access could maybe move toward addressing those problems as well with this new beneficial tool called the Internet. Just throwing it out yeah, there. Yeah, that's that's getting getting, uh, you know, to bus- be- business and education and stuff right. like that at the ground level is probably a really big um, uh, block right now to some of these also, populations entrance to- into to be fair, Bill Gates is probably still a little ticked off that Microsoft got on the Internet game way too late and that was his fault. So, I mean, that's probably some sour grapes there, I'm just saying. Possibly. Also, um, I need a cookie. I'm getting grouchy. <laughs> let's let's talk about um, the, the, the staff working on this project sure. and a little bit into the future. OK. Um, all right. So the project is being headed by one Mike Cassidy. Uh, previously, the founder of a search engine direct hit, which sold to Ask Jeeves for like yeah, five hundred million back yeah, in the year two thousand. Nothing. Yeah. Um. And uh, Rich Duvall, uh, formerly of Apple's tech advancement crew, both of whom matriculated at MIT. Uh, and Rich Duvall, I believe, is in fact the person I was referring to who would be looking at projects and saying, "This needs to be proven to be worthwhile, or it gets axed." And so far, Google Loon has has Not. crossed that threshold where it's okay. It's above the line. It's floating over it. You might say. You you might because it's a balloon. I goodness my gracious! Okay. Uh, they began testing prototypes out in Central Valley, California, in 2011, and once they had some good ones, a pilot test was conducted in uh, June 2013 out in Christchurch in Canterbury, New Zealand. Ah, yes. So uh, now they they're as I recall, they they did that test. Now they're kind of fine tuning everything, right? Right, they're, right. They're they're back in Central Valley as of as of this podcast. I uh, think they've actually just launched a full pilot program according to their own website. So that's like breaking news as of the recording of this podcast. Oh, I did not so, read that, but that's awesome. Yeah, it's on their on their website. They talk about the pilot program is is in place. Uh, it says our pilot test began this week. We launched thirty balloons. So um, there you go. But I think <laughs> that might that. There's no date on that website, so it, it might be that that announcement is actually the test that you're talking about here. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I'm willing to guess that that's probably the case and that it's, you know, since there is no date there, they didn't literally launch it this week. Uh, either way, they are hoping to launch a, a wide scale test around the 35th to 40th parallel south, um, providing service to uh, like New Zealand, Australia, Uruguay, Chile, Argentina, South Africa, that kind of that kind of band. Yeah, and then they're talking there about 300 to 400 balloons, which is far more than 30. So I am now convinced that that 30 one I was talking about saying was the June test. Uh, yeah, well, there's there's no there's no date on when they're planning on launching this. Everything is still in testing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're they're working on designs that will stay in the air longer for for up to about 100 days at a time without needing to be serviced. So their pilot test began with 30 balloons that they launched from uh, Tekapo, which is an area in New Zealand. 
uh, on New Zealand's South Island, in fact. And there's an article in Wired that is a blast to read where they talk about the pilot program and what it was like to be um, approached by Google. Uh, so the first civilian who got access secretly to this, his name is uh, Charles Nimmo. And uh, the very first site he visited was Google. Uh, you know, he thought it was only <laughs> fair. Sure, but then sure. but then the the second family, actually, that got access was a New Zealand family called uh, the McKinsey's. It was Hayden and Anna McKinsey. And Hayden McKinsey told Wired, he said that he was approached by mysterious dudes who said that they wanted to have him be part of a test, but they couldn't tell him what the test was until he had agreed to be part of a test. And then he couldn't talk about the test until they told him he could talk about the test. But he couldn't even know what the test was until he agreed to do it. Those guys in that car outside of our building said a really similar thing to me. We can't look at them because then they get scarier. Anyway, the test, um, gosh, I hope those guys in that car don't play a larger role in future podcasts. Um, that would be terrible. It'd be dreadful. The, so the, uh, the, the, the mysterious dudes convinced the McKinsey's that they weren't there to steal their brains or anything. And the McKinsey's agreed. They said, all right, well, whatever this test is, let's try it out. So then the dudes went up and put this red basketball or the, in the article, I think they said it was like a soccer ball size or football for those in New Zealand sized, uh, object and put it on top of their house. Still didn't tell them what it was for. Totally left that part out, left the house. The next day they came back and said, okay, you have internet now. Because they had launched a balloon that was now floating 60,000 feet over the McKinsey's farm. They were, they're farmers. Uh-huh. And so they, the, uh, Anna McKinsey turned on her computer, logged into the network that was for the, the, the Google Loon program and, uh, discovered that she did indeed have internet access. And she went to like the New Zealand equivalent of eBay to look at tractors because they're farmers. Yeah. So, uh, but it was so funny to hear about, these guys just like, we want you to be in this test, but we can't tell you what it is or what it'll do. <laughs> Installing it and still not telling them until the next day. And that they were just like, yeah, sure. It's like, now you've got internet. <laughs> well, it's New Zealand. I mean, you know, there's, there's only so many Hobbit films that can be made there. So you gotta, you gotta make your own fun. I, su- I suppose at a certain point when you've had like orcs running through your relative backyard, it's, things are less strange. I suppose so. Um, I, I just thought that was a cool story. Yeah, so yeah. highly uh, recommend that Wired article. You can, new, speaking, speaking of New Zealand, New Zealand listeners, you can still sign up to be a pilot tester if, uh, I, I'm not, I mean, if you have really spotty access to internet, I'm not entirely sure how you're listening to the show right this very moment but um but yeah you can just go to www.google.com slash loon slash where that's w-h-e-r-e and uh scroll all the way down to sign up that's pretty cool you know this is a really neat project i think it's one of those things where if it works it's just gonna be uh completely awesome to see that level of access suddenly uh, becoming much more widespread i i really hope that it works out and it's just it's to me, I like what I like about it is that it's a really innovative approach to a problem. Right. Yeah. I had never thought I would never, ever, ever have thought of, of anything like this. And, you right. know, a few people on the Internet have have said that, you know, oh, well, Loon is a really appropriate name for the project because it's crazy. So was um, going to the moon. And we <laughs> did that. So not me personally. I haven't, no. I haven't been. Uh, but, yeah, not I yet. just no, <laughs> got to think forward. I think it's a. Uh, I think it's pretty exciting. And that, and again, this really kind of Im- illustrates how 
the culture at Google and specifically the Google X division uh, really rewards innovation and that they want people to think in new and interesting ways to come at problems from directions that you just wouldn't expect. Yeah. And it's just an awesome example of that. I really hope it works. Obviously, yeah. if, if, if the experiment fails, then that means we still have learned something. We've learned, you know, that this, this approach, while innovative, is not practical. And maybe that means we re-examine and find a new way of addressing the issue. And, and either way, you know, we've got some of that great scientific research that's going to NOAA. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, so no matter what, we're still learning. So yeah, it's one of those things where I just see this as a, as a positive all around. But yeah, but I'm excited to see where it goes. And thank you so much, Andrew, for writing in. Yeah. So hey, if you want to have your suggestion read on an episode of Tech Stuff and have us cover the topic you've always wanted to hear about, Write to us. Our address is techstuff at discovery.com or drop us a line on social networks. We're on Tumblr. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. You can find us with the handle techstuffhsw. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 